So we're going to be in John chapter 2. If you'll open your Bibles and turn there, simply by opening up your heart and your mind and your mouth in prayer. But I love going to the Gospels because we get to actually see him doing what he does. And I was thinking it's similar to me to going to Israel itself. I think better because we're actually looking at Jesus and learning from him. But to be in Israel, same kind of idea. It's just there's nowhere like it. So we join Jesus in Israel this evening, actually in a place called Cana. We'll get there in just a second. But the last two verses of chapter 1, I want to open there and we'll roll on into chapter 2 of the Gospel of John. Chapter 1, verse 50, Jesus answered and said to Nathanael, you may recall this from Sunday, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending, not on a ladder like Jacob dreamed, but on the son of man who is the ladder. And again, we talked about that on Sunday, that Jesus could not possibly have seen Nathanael. And an awareness in Jesus' mind and heart of what Nathanael was reading under that fig tree. And it was amazing and supernatural. It blew Nathaniel away to the point that he calls him king of Israel, son of God, using those messianic terms. But Jesus says, that's nothing. You're going to see greater things than these. And the implications were both near and far. The implications were going to be in the immediate ministry of Jesus, and Nathaniel was going to see greater things happen one upon the next. In fact, in the four Gospels, 37 miracles are delineated. And we know there were many more because there were times, for, for example, in Matthew where he said he was just healing people for three days. And the specific healings throughout those three days are not listed out. So more than that, but at least 37 that are listed. And tonight we come to the first of these greater things with the first of the seven signs. It's these particular seven, and there's a reason. There are seven signs. The word signs is semion in the Greek, and it means a miracle, a wonder, a token or listen, a mark of supernatural authenticity. That's how John uses it. He chooses these seven signs to include in the gospel because each one of these seven, as far as the Spirit is concerned, speaking through John, each one of these sevens authenticate Jesus as the Son of God. No one else could do these. They couldn't be hyped up by anyone. Couldn't just be a great prophet or a great teacher. These had to authenticate the godness of Jesus. And so John includes these seven, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, the changing of water to wine, which we'll look at in a moment. Chapter 4, verses 46 through 54, the healing of an official's son. The opposite of seeing Nathaniel, as I said Sunday, he's going to heal the official son from Cana, and the official son is in Capernaum. So a long-distance healing is the second. Chapter 14 is going to be the feeding of the 5,000 mentioned in all four Gospels. Uh, chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. The fifth sign is Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, Jesus will heal a man born blind in the temple. And then chapter 11, verses 1 through 45, the seventh sign is raising Lazarus from the dead. And those are the seven signs. We'll come upon each one and deal with them, not tonight, but as we go through the Gospel of John. So again, seven signs, seven miracles that are here specifically to authenticate 
the messiahship, if you will, of Jesus, Jesus as God, and the changing of water to wine is the first. Now listen to me on this. Here's where I'm not going to go tonight. We're not going to deal with the wine issue. Okay, it's too easy for one thing, and if we use this story to either defend Christian drinking or as proof of Jesus' approval of alcohol, we will water down what really was and, and, and all of that. I'm not going to get into that. The motive behind this miracle is not so shallow as a glass of wine. The motive behind the miracle is the godness of Jesus. As it says in verse 11, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. That's the point. It is the manifestation of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. So let's think about this. I'm going to outline chapter 2. We'll do the whole chapter tonight and we're going to do it with three firsts. Three firsts. First of all, the first sign. Chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Cana. So it is 18 miles from Capernaum, which is Capernaum, means village of comfort, or Nahum's village, Jesus would have taken every time he went back to Nazareth or from Nazareth back to the Galilee. It was a passageway through the mountains. Again, the Arbel Pass, 18 miles, and about five miles from Nazareth, north of Nazareth, along that pass, so 13 miles from Capernaum, sat Cana, the village of Cana, still there to this day. From Capernaum to Cana is a, a restful, easy two- to three-day walk. And it's now, we're told by John, the third day, the third day, perhaps since Nathaniel's eye-popping encounter with Jesus, but he says it's the third day, and of course the third day is always significant in the Bible. It's one of those things that when it pops up, when, it's, when we're told this happened on the third day, we need to stop and say, why? Because the third day is highly significant. Genesis 22, verse 4, on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. That's amazing. On the third day, Abraham and Isaac are on Mount Moriah. and On Mount Sinai, we're told that it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. That happened on the third day. Hosea chapter 6. And there are many other references, but I just chose these three. Hosea chapter 6 verse 1 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. This is Israel crying out prophetically. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. And if a day is as a thousand years to the Lord and Israel's saying he will revive us after two days and it's been 2,000 years that on the third day he will raise us up and the Bible promises, Jesus promises, Israel will indeed be saved on the third day. So every mention of the third day in Matthew, Mark, and Luke all is spoken with reference to Jesus' resurrection. 
And if you skip down to verse 18 of chapter 2, the Jews said to Jesus, what sign will you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but again, it's the third day he speaks of. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Here, the first sign of John happens on the third day. Water is changed to wine on the third day. It's a remarkable molecular transformation that takes place on the third day. So you could say, going over the scriptures and thinking it through, sacrifice happens on the third day. Presence happens on the third day. Revival happens on the third day. Resurrection on the third day. And transformation here that Jesus committed to his Jewish critics was his resurrection. Now that's interesting. What's the first thing you would tell someone who doesn't believe What's the first thing that you would tell them about Jesus? Would you immediately go to the resurrection? You may not naturally, but we should. Because it is the resurrection that makes all the difference. The resurrection is the one sign that brings forth belief. That's why Jesus says, it's the only one I'm going to give to you. Now, he does all these other signs and all these other miracles and all these other healings, and they can't see them. Because signs and wonders never bring faith. Signs and wonders follow those who believe. Mark chapter 16 tells us, come after those who believe. But it's not signs and wonders that bring faith. It's belief in the resurrection. It's recognizing a resurrected Christ that faith begins to spring up in a person. And so Jesus says, I'm going to give you that one sign, the sign of resurrection on the third day. Now, I want to pick some things gospel, and you might find it surprising. It's the mother of Jesus. Verse 3 again, or verse 3 tells us, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. The mother of Jesus. Do you know that John the Apostle never calls her by name? Doesn't refer to her as Mary. He, He names three other Marys. It's interesting because John knows Mary probably better than any of the apostles, especially at the point that he's writing this gospel. He's been caring for her for 60 years. And yet he doesn't name her. He doesn't acknowledge her other than calling her twice the mother of Jesus in chapter 2 and then later in chapter 19. The mother of Jesus. He names Mary the wife of Clopas. He names Mary the sister of Lazarus and, and Martha. He names Mary Magdalene. But he only mentions the mother of Jesus in passing here and again at the cross. And Jesus in the Gospel of John never refers to her as Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with us? Now, I don't think he said it that way. But he calls her woman. That's all he ever calls her, woman. Gune in in the Greek, which would be even worse. If I called my wife Gune, I would be in trouble, telling you. Gune, where we get the word gyne, gynecology, it it, it has to do with woman. It speaks of woman, but in the Greek, it's a common term for a married or betrothed woman. It's a term of respect. It's like we would say ma'am. So, gune, when Jesus says woman, he's not going, woman. He's he's saying ma'am, ma'am. 
He's speaking respectfully. He will do it again from the cross. John 19, verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom Jesus loved, we believe John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own. He was severed when the Spirit came on him at his baptism. And it was no longer the issue. When he began his public ministry, hey, doesn't mean that he stopped caring for her as evidenced on the cross. He still looked out for her. But he no longer was truly her son. In fact, Jesus said in Mark chapter 3, verse 33, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You know, they say blood is thicker than water. Perhaps. But you know what? Spirit runs thicker than blood. Always does. Which is why we as a church family have something closer, more intimate than any of us have even in family outside of Christ. What do you do with that? By the blood of Jesus, there is a new family. There's a change in our family ties. All the better if our blood relatives also believe, but what if they don't? What if they don't? Well, I would say to you on that, love your family for heaven's sake. <laughs> for heaven's sake. For the sake of them going to heaven. But don't allow unbelieving family to dissuade you from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Spirit is thicker than blood, and his blood has saved us. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That is a challenge for me because I love my kids. But Jesus says, you've got to love me more. I have to come first. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. So they're in Cana at the wedding, and the wine ran out. What did Mary have to do with that? Why does she obviously thought Jesus could do something about it? Something, well, she expected him to perform a miracle. I, I don't know. I don't know. I think she just expected Jesus to come up with something because she knew her son's heart. She knew something about him that made her turn to him and say, hey, we have a problem here. Now, understand this. Jewish weddings were a big deal, still are to this day. If you're, if you're in Jerusalem and a Jewish wedding is taking place, it's hard to miss. It's a lot of fun, very joyful. And, and, and I mean, people parade through the streets and bring the canopy and they sing and they dance. They have a marvelous time. In the first century, they did it for a week. The Jewish wedding was a seven-day affair. Someone didn't plan ahead. A seven-day wedding and the wine runs out. They have no wine, Mary says. Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. It was a culturally shameful moment. If you've read the story, you know that. Not her son, mind you, but the son of God on mission. And he says, my hour has not yet come. Come. Remember seven times Jesus will say this in the Gospel of John. My hour has not yet come. 
Why? Because Jesus didn't live life in the moment. He lived life to the moment. So critical to understand about him and even the way we live our lives. Are you living in the moment or to the moment? See, for Jesus, it was all about the moment of his fulfillment, the moment of his sacrifice, the fulfillment of his coming to the earth. His eyes were fixed on the cross. From the beginning forward, he lived to the moment. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. A man of purpose. Nobody was more purposeful than Jesus. He looked and lived to that moment when he would die for our sins. We all have one. How will we finish? How will our lives culminate? Again, that wonderful word from David, Psalm 90, verse 2, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. That is to say, on the day that we stand before Jesus, we can say, we gave what you gave us. We lived wisely with what you entrusted to us. We had our moment. Well, Jesus knew why he'd come. My hour has not yet come, and that hour he knew would come. And for all the miracles and the healings and the raisings and the teachings, Jesus knew his primary mission was ever before him. His mission was the cross. Well, verse 5 his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, this interplay between Mary and Jesus is very interesting to me because he basically puts her off. She doesn't even listen to him. Like any good mother, she just says what he says to do. You just take care of that. Do it. I like that. I think Mary would be pleased with that. I think if we could have Mary here to share a little something, maybe give a little devotional thought tonight, I think she would say, whatever he says to you, do it. The last words that she speaks, as if to say, don't listen to me, don't follow me, don't venerate me, don't worship me. Whatever he says to you, do that. And so she appeals to Jesus. Again, not knowing what he would do or even expecting him to do something miraculous, she just knew somehow Jesus was going to make it okay. And the best advice I can give tonight is what she already gave, whatever he says to you, do that. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 7, you must be born again. Have you done that? Jesus said, John 13, 34, love each other just as I have loved you. Have you done that? He said in John 15, 5, abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Are you abiding in him? If you haven't, go back and do it. And if you have, listen for the next but Jesus is always telling us to do something. He's giving us what we need to do. Do as he says. So, verse 6, Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. These are big pots. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you've kept the good wine until now? 
Of course, a miraculous wine made by Jesus would be, the, would be the best wine in the world. But this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed. I will say this about drinking. I'm not sure why Christians use this passage to defend it. Why do we feel like we need to defend it? Why do we even have that conversation, really? And when we do that, we miss the potency. His divine nature. Water into wine. I said on Sunday, this is a miracle of molecular transformation. He literally changes it, H2O, into a molecular structure that is massively different. Yes, it has H2O in it as part of it, but what we're seeing here is sovereignty over matter, and no human being could conjure this. Only God could make it happen. And again, we know that it's not watered-down wine. It's not bitter wine. It was the good wine. This is the sweetest and best. The head waiter is shocked, is surprised that it is so good. Jesus Interesting, he used these some vessels. Oh, yeah, the, the, the washing vessels for, for religious purification. Let's use that. What is Jesus thinking? Oh, see, he is thinking. Because like, like the blood of grapes, Jesus is now indicating his own blood is a blood that purifies. It's perfect that he uses the purification water pots, that they become a, a portrait by the blood of grapes of, of blood itself. It is a sign. Remember, a sign intended to authenticate that Jesus is God, authenticating his reason for coming. And we know that in his death, when his hour had come, his blood became our transformative purification. It does all of that. It doesn't just purify me. It purifies me and changes me, transforms me into a new creature. This is the sign that reveals transformation. Now, I, I find it interesting. You know, I, I read through a lot of comments said, quote, Jesus' action was, in C.S. Lewis's terminology, a miracle of the old creation. That is, a new way to achieve an old natural thing. F.F. Bruce continues, he says, the creator who year by year turns water into wine, so to speak, by a natural process, on this occasion speeds up the process and attains the same end. Now, this is the first time, I think, in all of my years of doing this that I have disagreed with F.F. Bruce and C.S. Lewis. But I have to disagree here because he says, this is interesting, the creator who year by year turns water into wine by natural process, that doesn't happen. Water never becomes wine by natural process. That's not a natural process. Grapes become wine as they ferment, but they're already grapes, and wine still has that grapish flavor to it. And how long does it take for, in the old way, for water to become wine? It does. Eventually, bing, it'll become wine. That's about how intelligent evolutionary thought is. We're just going to spring into something different. Okay, I'm not going to go down that road. But this is supernatural transformation. This is miraculous in every sense. He is changing the structure from one thing to another. This is not the old way, water becoming wine quickly. 
which is the implication that F.F. Bruce is getting at. It's that Jesus took something that took a lot of time and he just did it really fast. No, he did something that was impossible, something that could not happen otherwise. The causality is Christ. This is a miracle. Jesus makes it happen and in so doing reveals his divine nature and he reminds you and me that that's why he came, to change us. He came to transform us. That we and Jesus can go from watered down to rich and strong. We go being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Think about this whole story. Just put it all together in one sentence. Stone vessels filled with water that Jesus transformed into wine, which in turn is now going to be served to others to bring them joy. That's us. That is a picture of the Christian life. That's the whole idea. Is that your life? I've had to think about it this week. Is that my life? I was just water in a pot. And Jesus transformed me. And now my life is about bringing the gospel and with it joy. That's why John says later in the gospel, why Jesus says, so that our joy may be made full, literally to the brim. Do people know the joy of your faith? Is the joy of your following after Jesus evident? I kid about this from time to time, but there is no, there's no room in faith for, for the person who calls like me. I mean, come on. This is a joyful thing. Amen? We have the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. It is more joyful than any party or any wine could ever bring. And Jesus does that to us. He transforms us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels like stone pots so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And by the way, in this story at the wedding at Cana, there is one person who goes unmentioned who is absolutely key to the wedding, and that is the bride. She's never even mentioned here. And yet, she is here. In a sense, the bride of Christ is the water made wine. As Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, and I just love how Paul does this. He says, husbands, love your wives how, Paul, as Christ, wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. I'll tell you what, husbands, you can amen with me on this. That is a tall order. I'm supposed to love my wife like that? Whew, I got some work to do. He says husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Paul doesn't say, nourish and cherish her while you're dating. And then when you get married, say, I told you I love you at our wedding, and if that changes, I'll let you know. No, you nourish her, you cherish her, and you continue to do so. That is the prescription of the scriptures. And then he says, he says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes, as Christ also does the church. 
because we're members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father. How I can nourish and cherish and love her in spite of my sinful self. It's a big challenge. And then Paul swings the whole thing around and says, <laughs> but I'm talking about Christ in the church. That's the whole point. Yes, husbands, love your wives. But, but the point is Jesus and the church. The point is his bride. And so this picture of the wedding at Cana starts the miracles of Jesus. He begins with a wedding, and he will end with a wedding, Revelation chapter 19 tells us. The marriage feast of the Lamb, where the bride will be presented in all of her glory without spot or wrinkle or any blemish. What an amazing wedding that will be. And by the way, does anyone remember the promise that Jesus made at the last Passover? Matthew 26, 29, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So don't proof text John chapter 2 as a wine-bibbing chapter. You're going to have your wine with Jesus in the kingdom. That ought to be enough. Let's move on. Verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, Capernaum, again, the village of Nahum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Capernaum rests on the northwest shore of Lake Canaret, which is the Sea of Galilee. To this day, it is a favorite spot to visit. It's beautiful. It's, it's an archaeological find par excellence, and it's one of our favorite places to go on the tour because it's so peaceful. I like to sit there right on the beach at the edge of, of Capernaum and, and open up and do teaching and, and talk about something that Jesus did there, right there in Capernaum. It was Jesus' ministry HQ. And so they go back to Capernaum, and it's a, a wonderful place. Everybody knew, by the way, that it was his HQ. John chapter 6, verse 24 tells us they got into small boats and they came to Capernaum seeking Jesus because they knew that's where he liked to go. He always ends up back at Capernaum, but not to Jerusalem. It's the high place in the country. There are other places higher. There are other mountains taller than Mount Moriah, but nonetheless, you always go up to Jerusalem. I have never failed to say that but one time, and it was amazing how many people immediately caught me when I said, so they went down to Jerusalem. Like five people went, oh, no, up, up to Jerusalem. <laughs> I think you were one of them, Bill. Caught me. <laughs> you always go up to Jerusalem. And so Jesus goes up for Passover. Have you ever wondered, what was it like to be Jesus going to Passover? All of his life, he would go to 32, 33 Passovers. And every time, wondering, thinking about, realizing that he was the Passover lamb that ultimately he was the one that would be the final Passover. Now, John structures his entire gospel around three Passovers, Pesach in Passover, and then finally, John 11, verse 55, we come to the third Passover. And by this, we know the length. That's how we think of or know of Jesus' ministry is two and a half to three years because he visited, he went up to Jerusalem for three Passovers. I, I think I shared this when we opened up John a few weeks back, that if we just had Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we might think the ministry of Jesus was a year long. Because if you just track it through chronologically, it could all happen within a year. It's John who comes along and says, no, 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 it was three. 
Three Passovers across the span of Jesus' ministry. And this is, after looking at the first sign, this is our second first, the first Passover, verse 14. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. The fact that this is in the temple should shock any thinking Jewish person. Absolutely inappropriate. In fact, prohibited by God. Drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And I'm just sitting here watching this going, go, Jesus. This is so cool. He takes on all of these Jewish businessmen, just goes after them. And those who were selling the doves to them, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. What an amazing scene. This event shows us the fulfillment of Malachi's 420-year-old prophecy, which reads, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. So Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. His ministry has now begun. He suddenly comes into the temple. And man, he cleans house. And he does it with power. And he does it with authority. And he does clear the temple twice. John shows us. Some would say, well, no, John just placed it here. No, John is, is he's laying this out for us to understand. In the right order, what took place? Passover to Passover to Passover. This was the first Passover. Matthew, Mark, and Luke declare the final Passover is when Jesus cleared the temple. So we can know today it was both. It's like bookends of sanctification for his ministry. Cleaning the temple, cleaning house, and then on with his ministry he goes. And then at the end of his ministry in that final week, he's going to have to clean house again because the sin comes rolling right back into the house. Kind of why we continue to need to be sanctified, you know? The sin keeps wanting to roll in, keeps wanting to show up. Now, this isn't just my opinion. This is sound interpretation. John makes it clear, and Matthew and Mark and Luke make it clear. One cleansing of the temple at the beginning of his ministry and one at the end. Now, he says here that they're money changers. There's in chapter, or verse 14, the money changers, that's the kermitistes, or I like to call them the kermit, the frogs, okay? These are the small coin dealers, the kermitistes. Kermitistes, small coin dealers. Then in verse 15, when it says money changers, it's the kolobistes. The kolobistes are currency exchangers. So you have small coin dealers and you have currency exchangers. There are two different things going on here. The small coin dealer, the Kermitistes, would only deal in Tyrian drachmas because it was the purest silver around. It's the only silver that they would accept. So it had to be the Tyrian drachma, and the people had to go through the Kolobistes, the currency exchangers, to get that. If they brought the wrong money, if they brought a different kind, they always had to exchange it. And these money exchangers were known to charge as much as 12% on the exchange. 12% to 12.5%. What does that mean? Through Nisan 15th, it means this was going on for a month in the temple. They set up shop as people began to flow in for, for Passover. 
And they were set up and ready to go early, and the entire month this was going on, set up through the entire season, one great big racket to pickpocket the pilgrims as they came in, to rip off their own people. You might remember that this was prohibited by God. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19, you shall not charge interest to your countrymen. Interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. You may charge interest to a foreigner, but to your countrymen, you shall not charge interest. And so the way they got away with it is they said, well, you know, we don't know who's foreigner and who's not. They know, so they just need to figure it out themselves. You know, we, we can't be figuring out, asking people, are you from Israel or not? So it's just, it's their problem, not ours. It's, it's, they saw this taking place. And John tells us that the followers of Jesus, they saw this and they remembered the prophetic passion of Messiah for his father's house. He, he quotes from Psalm 69, verse 9, which reads, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Zeal for your house has consumed me. It's verse 17. Zeal for your house will consume me. And so John quotes this. Zeal for your house. You think Jesus was popular among the religious moneymakers? How, how do you think they reacted as he's turning over the tables and the money is just spilling out on the ground. Jesus never sold the gospel. He always said, freely you receive, freely you give. The gospel is free. Cost him everything, cost you nothing but trusting. Cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons, freely you received, freely give. That is always Jesus' attitude about the gospel. And man, we still do it today. We, we charge all kinds of things for that which ought to be free, for that which God has given us. I really wonder if in the church today, if we didn't have any product to sell, we just offered the gospel free of charge. We just said, here it is. We will never charge for teaching at the bridge. And it shocks me how many do. And I know it always starts out with, with good, you know, intention. Well, but we got to cover postage and, and a little extra to keep that ministry going. Okay. Freely you receive, freely give. By the way, to make matters worse, these money-changing booths were set up, you Bible students know this, in the court of the Gentiles. This large open space in the temple, the first open space as you came into the temple complex, the court of the Gentiles was the largest and, and the outer open space, and everybody could come in there, and it was designed as a place of peaceful prayer and contemplation as you made your way into the other courts. And the Gentiles all around could come in. They could worship there. They could experience, they could see what, what this Judaism was all about and how God loved this people and even had a handout to them as well. And here, for all the world to see, they turned it into a place of religious capitalism. And it's sick. I'm not opposed to capitalism, by the way. Just, just want to throw this out there, I think, as an economic system. And we need to remember that as we give to people freely. If you were able to, to purchase any of your grace, maybe you could charge for it yourself. 
But you know the truth, we can't. We are not like many, Paul said, 2 Corinthians 2, 17, peddling the word of God. But as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Zeal for his house, means of God. Zeal for your house, for your household. Zeal for righteousness and holiness and truth and a loving concern for the lost and agape for the people of his household. That's zeal for his house. But understand this. If like Jesus, you have zeal for the house of God, and we should, understand you will invite reproach. That's part of the deal. As Paul quotes the last clause of Psalm 69, verse 9, Romans 15, verse 3, he said, even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Zeal for your house will consume me and reproach will follow. And that's exactly what happens. Psalm 69, verse 9, powerful verse. By the way, Psalm 69 is quoted seven times in the New Testament. It's the most, or the sixth most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's one worth reading. Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. David understood that. David was a defender of God, a defender of God's righteousness and his glory, even to the point of reproach for it. Of course, not like Jesus. By the way, did you catch the difference between how Psalm 69 verse 9 reads and how John writes it? Psalm 69 verse 9 again says, zeal for your house has consumed me. Verse 17, zeal for your house will consume me. He changes it to future tense. His apostles remembered this. His apostles remembered. Zeal for your house will consume me. Two years later, the next time Jesus cleanses the temple, he lights a fuse that sets off a chain reaction of reproach that will ultimately be the death of him. By our sin and by the wrath of God because of his zeal for his father's house. Mark chapter 11, verse 17 tells us at the last Passover, he began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den? And the chief priests and the scribes heard, and they began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And it was this next cleansing of the temple at that third Passover that ultimately incensed the Jewish leaders to the point of crucifixion. Verse 18, the Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as to your authority or as your authority for doing these things? You ever wonder why they didn't just stop him? I mean, think about this. Okay, this is Passover. It said that sometimes upwards of, it's even been estimated 2 million were all them out. He makes a whip which I think is really Indiana Jones of him, and he begins moving through the temple and striking and slashing and, and driving the animals out and turning over the tables. You got a madman. What would you do? Where's the temple guard? No one does anything. I mean, there's just something in the moment with the authority of Jesus. I think they recognized they could not step in. They could not stop him. I think they also knew the money changing itself was sinfully wrong. 
what, what they were going to defend what they were doing. Everybody had accepted it. But at this point, now that it's being driven out, what we're going to say, no, 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 this is okay. No one could say that. Jesus had them over a barrel or over a table, whatever it takes. And he's driving them out and just, it's just this awesome moment. So instead of trying to stop him, they say, whoa, 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 hey, what authority do you have? They challenged him for a sign. Give us a sign. Verse 19, Jesus answered, in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. By the way, there, there's, a, there's a nuance here, kind of a double entendre. He is speaking of the temple of his body. But we're also told in Zechariah chapter 6 that Messiah will build the temple of the Lord. So they may have been thinking along those lines of this guy, messianic in nature and authority, the people love him, and some are even calling him Messiah, and he's saying, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. <laughs> what? Oh, you're saying you're Messiah? You're going to come in and build the temple? That, that may have been their reaction. Either way, he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Again, note this, don't ever forget it, the greatest sign or manifestation of Jesus' authority is his resurrection. That is the sign, the sign of his authority. As Paul said, if Christ is not resurrected, we above all people are most to be pitied. Can't believe in that. Don't waste your time with anything else because that, that's the, the key, the resurrection. By the way, there's another subtle translation change here. You wouldn't notice if you're just reading through in the English. Look back at verse 14. He found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And that word temple is hiiron. Hiiron, which means the entirety of the temple complex. So that is a big, fat, generic word for the whole complex itself. Once you've entered up the southern steps and you go inside, you're in the hiiron in the Greek. But it's a different word that he uses in verse 19 when Jesus says, destroy this temple, he uses the word naos. And naos is the sanctuary. It's the holy place, containing, of course, the holy of holies. It's the inner temple. Jesus speaks of this when he refers to himself to destroy this holy place. And in three days, I will raise it up. And you know what? They would have freaked out if they had understood him. He's speaking in code at this point. First Passover, it's not his hour. He knows the hour and when it will come, and he is working toward that. It's not yet his time. So he's still speaking some code, some things that they don't understand. But listen, naos is the same word that the apostle Paul used decades earlier than this letter to describe the bodies of Jesus' people. This is awesome. This is so amazing to me. Do you not know, 1 Corinthians 3.16, that you are a naos of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the naos of God, the sanctuary, the holy place of God, God will destroy him. For the naos of God is holy and that is what you are. That's, that's what Paul says we are. You indwelt that sanctuary in Solomon's temple. And that's the comparison that Paul makes. That, I, don't, I don't get it. 
I, I honestly confess to you, I do not get how this old body can be a sanctuary for the Holy Spirit, and yet it is. His Spirit dwelling within me. Do you zealously, listen to me, do you zealously defend righteousness for this temple? Do you, as you go through life day to day, say, this temple's got to be holy. This is the holy place of God. This is where his spirit dwells. Where I take this temple, I take his spirit. What I do with this temple, I do with the glory of God. This, this is the naos. My body's the holy place in which God dwells. Wow. I think that would change an awful lot of our behavior if we could tune into that. Include with first impressions. First impressions. The last three verses of this chapter may actually be an introduction to chapter 3. Kind of setting up, if you will, an intimate after-hours meeting that Jesus will have with Nicodemus, and we're going to get into that on Sunday, and I'm really excited for it. But for now, verse 23, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, Many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. It's already happening. <laughs> They're seeing Jesus. And the common people are saying, Jesus, Jesus, he's our man. And they're believing, and they're looking to him, and they're calling him Messiah, and they're excited about him. And it says, but Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. And I, I've told you, what, talked about this a bit on Sunday, I love those two verses. Can't tell you how many times in my life I have stepped in it big time. I've walked right into a human relationship mess not having a clue. I'll give you an example. Cheryl and I were having an, uh, a heated discussion the other night. One of those rare moments and, and uh, not in full agreement, you know. Uh, there's some denominational differences, I think, were going on there. And we're in our room and we're, we're talking about something. And we're, we're both tired and frustrated. It happens in marriage. We're still married, so everything's good. But Corey walked in and kind of walks in and goes, I just want, because he had a question about Suki, which is pretty much common in our house right now. Had a question, comes walking in, we're in the middle of it. I turn and I look at him like, dude, really? I think that's exactly what I said, something like that. Dude, Corey knows when I call him dude, it's time to leave the room. So he just quietly backed out and closed the door. You know, let us continue our, our repartee. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've done that exact thing. You just come barreling into a situation because human beings are tricky. And passing, and especially in these days with COVID and masks and the whole thing, wherever you stand on the whole issue, man, be careful, because someone you're talking to probably has a completely different opinion than you do. And, and we just walk right into it. Jesus just discerned everyone, knew, had the insight to human nature. He never stepped in it. He never stumbled into the room. When Jesus offended, it was because he was right and they knew it. He just had it down. And I, I told you before, I, of all the spiritual gifts, the gift of wisdom, to, to read people the way Jesus read people. But get this, understand what this is saying. 
He did not need anyone to testify concerning men. He, he did not entrust himself to them. It wasn't that Jesus was cold. It wasn't that he was aloof. No child would sit on his lap if he was cold and aloof. You know, people wouldn't be drawn to him, long to be around him if he was a jerk. He wasn't that way at all. But people, as his own mother saw in him, was there to help if there was a need. Even if they were running out of wine, ask Jesus, he's got it. He'll do something because that was his nature. And people knew that Jesus was good, but they didn't know that Jesus was God. And that's what he held close to his own heart. He didn't share that. Remember, I said he was a son on a mission. He didn't even tell his apostles until Caesarea Philippi. And when he did let it slip, as he will in John chapter 4 for the first time, <laughs> it's remarkable who he tells. A Samaritan woman is the first person who's going to hear Jesus say, I'm Messiah. Okay, jumping ahead to chapter 4, why does Jesus tell the Samaritan woman? Why does he let slip, I'm the Messiah? You know why he tells her? Because he read her heart and he knew that she could hold on to that. That says something I think pretty impressive. And when Jesus said, okay, all right, let's get this clear. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You got it, Pete. And we're told that in Matthew 16, verse 20, he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up, by the way, on the third day. So interesting that now he's beginning to instruct his apostles for the last six months of his ministry. But early on at this point, he wasn't even entrusting himself to his apostles. He didn't tell them who he was. They didn't understand what was really behind all this. They may have had some suspicions, but he held it close to his vest. F.F. Bruce says, he who is the word incarnate has immediate apprehension of the mysteries and complexities of human nature. He does not depend on spoken words as the indexed. And here he is in Jerusalem on this first Passover of his ministry, and he knows, I can't spill the beans right now. I can't do it. Why? There are so many reasons we could get into. I'm just going to limit it to two real quickly. Two things that Jesus knew of humanity, knew of man, that caused him to be careful with who he revealed himself to. Number one, he knew the human heart was wicked. He knew it. He knew it not based on 30 years of experience, but based on 4,000 years of world history watching it all take place. The first man sinned all the way up to now Jesus comes into the world, a sinful world, and he knows the human heart, the heart of humanity is wicked. I mean, no offense, I'm just speaking the truth. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, Search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according as he knows his hour. He's got to get to that hour. And he's careful with who he shares, with how he reveals himself. The second thing that he knew, and this might surprise you, is he knew that the human heart wants to worship. So he had to be careful with that. What do you mean? Look back at verse 23. 
During the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. They were so excited. There was immediate, albeit superficial, response to Jesus. The people were thrilled. They wanted someone to worship. We all do. It's why we have celebrity in the world today. It's a sad, pathetic, wasteful use of worship, but it goes on and on. The human heart needs to worship another. Later on, Jesus, in John chapter 6, verse 15, it says, perceiving that they were intending to come make him by force or take him by force and make him king, he withdrew again to a mountain by himself alone. See, he's reading their hearts. He sees Jesus was not closed off, but he was cautious and he was insightful. And I think we can learn that from him. There's wisdom in that. To love openly and yet discern wisely when it comes to other people. Well, this all sets up what's going to take place in chapter 3. By the way, I'll tell you this much about chapter 3, the chapter that contains the famous John 3.16. It's the thousandth chapter of the Bible. And we're going to come to that thousandth chapter on Sunday morning. Last thing, what does it take for Jesus to entrust himself to you? Because ultimately, he did. Ultimately, he does reveal who he is. What does it take for him to do that? John chapter 14, verse 21, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself. Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our abode with him. And my friends, that is full disclosure. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us tonight. It is such an honor and a privilege to spend time with Jesus. And Lord Jesus, to see you at Cana with your compassion and your tenderness and your willingness to, to save face for the bride and groom and to, to continue to bring the joy into the house. And Lord, to show us transformation in your first miracle. Wow, the transformation that, that you promised to us. And then Lord, to see you in Jerusalem, what a marvel at that first Passover. To see your zeal and your passion, even in turning over tables. And Lord, I love that it's clear that you were fully in control. You were not just flying off the handle, but the same discernment. With each other in the household of God, would you cause us to be soft-hearted people, loving each other, reaching out, freely offering the gospel to those who are lost. And Lord, Lord at the same time, while our hearts are soft, we pray that our skin would be thick enough to deal with some of the messes of humanity of which, Lord, we're still apart until you call us home. Oh, Jesus, help us to discern like you. And tonight, Lord, thank you for revealing, for disclosing more of yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.